Thanks, AJ. Appreciate that. So it's good to be back, and you know I'm going to do it. So we'll just put the picture on the screen right now, right? There they are. Oh, my gosh, right? Yeah, they're so awesome. So those are my little sons of thunder, my little bash bros. Uh, Izzy is the one in the stars with the, that smile. Babies only do that when they're pooping or farting, so it's not that cute, and he does that a lot. And then Benjamin is the one uh, in the chevron. Yeah, I know, right? Pretty impressive. Yep, those are my boys. Uh, it's been pretty awesome to take these last couple weeks and just get used to life as a family of four. Uh, the four-year-old, she loves to hold the brothers. She goes, Izzy is my favorite, but so is Benjamin. So. She's an equal opportunity, like, lover of her brothers. And then the two-year-old, uh, she likes to go, brothers, cute. And then when she really wants to see them, she goes, hold it, hold it, peace, peace, hold it. Like, she really, but, like, her version of holding it is this. All done, all done. Like, she, she thinks, oh, you're supposed to lay on me. This is great. She doesn't know that appendages go around and keep their cranium safe, things like that. Um, it's really good. It's a lot of fun. I'm already like way past my bedtime, like almost for like the last two weeks. I'm asleep by now, because then they wake up at 10, and then it's like Poop Fest 2019. <laughs> More stories, other days. We got things to do. Um, we're in 1 Corinthians 14. I'm really excited to be back with you guys. I missed you a ton. This is my favorite thing to do, to gather with you and to open God's word. And we have an incredible text that we get to open tonight. We get to see how God is moving and working. Um, and so to that end, I want to pray. And then after I pray, I'm going to tell you three stories. But I'm going to go right into the stories after I pray. So you're not like caught off guard. Sound good? So let me pray. Father, we, we've come for presence. We've come because we want to experience the presence of our Father along with our brothers and sisters. We sit before you and, and we recognize that this gathering is not just something Christians should do, but it is an act of war. That when we gather like this, we let the powers and forces of darkness know that they're going to lose and that they are losing and that hope is going to triumph. That when we gather and we sing things that are truer than true and when we proclaim uh, things that are truer than, than truth itself. We let the world know that the things they're searching for and we let darkness know that the things that it's trying to hide will all be pushed away and exposed in the light and the love of Jesus. And so God, would you capture our hearts again tonight? Would your spirit impress on us things that only your spirit could impress on us? You are our father and you are our friend. Would we hear from our father? while we are with our friend tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. A 15-year-old boy, six months into his walk with Jesus, listens nervously in a summer camp chapel as the pastor explains, all he has to do to receive the gift of tongues is come forward. But his motivation for sliding out of that seat and heading towards the front of the stage is not to receive, to receive a form of prayer that cultivates intimacy with God, but instead to make sure he no longer looks stupid or less than among his youth group peers. There was a college gathering, a lot like this one, celebrating God's work among the nations. 
and a young Malawian girl stood on stage and began to pray in her native African language over this absolutely English-speaking congregation. All the while, a sophomore in college in the design program sitting there who had never left Iowa in her life heard that entire Malawian prayer in perfect English. Then lastly, a woman in her late 40s sits on the couch early in the morning enjoying her Folgers coffee and really cheesy old lady devotional. When suddenly she's hit with grief she cannot explain and all she can see in her head is the image of a family friend's son in absolute pain. So she begins to cry out in a language that no human ear has ever heard or could understand. After she's done crying out in that language, the family receives a phone call. Luke is in the hospital. He tried to kill himself. All three of these stories have everything to do with the expression of the Holy Spirit that we would call tongues. And when I say tongues, I have to imagine that in this room there is a massive spectrum for when I say that word, what you actually begin to think about or not think about, because you might not even have a category for it. I believe there's people who, this will be the first you've ever heard about tongues. That when you think about what the Holy Spirit does, when you hear this word, you have no idea what I'm talking about. But then there's also people who maybe grew up in a camp a little bit more like mine, the 15-year-old at summer camp, who found that he had spiritual scars and unintentional and intentional spiritual abuse done to him in the name of the expression of the Holy Spirit. And this is a two-part sermon, so I'll be back next Thursday talking about the other half of this. See, this chapter 14 is a passage that is comparing and contrasting two expressions of the Holy Spirit, tongues and prophecy. Tongues and prophecy. Tonight is part one, part one and we're gonna talk about tongues. But we need to start by defining terms. So I'm gonna define prophecy and then tongues for you. And I'm probably gonna totally mess that word up like a hundred times. But prophecy, what is prophecy? It's the ability to hear God's voice on behalf of an individual or a group. It's how God uses his voice through his people to build up his church. Always for the purpose of relationship, not for fortune telling, and it never contradicts or trumps scripture. So I'm gonna say it again, because that's a long one. It's the ability to hear God's voice on behalf of an individual or a group. It's how God uses his voice through his people to build up his church. It's always for the purpose of relationship, not fortune telling, and it never contradicts or trumps scripture. Now tongues. I would define tongues as this, a mysterious form of prayer that is spoken through the spirit by a person in an angelic or foreign language. And it's first about intimacy because prayer is always about intimacy. So tongues, a mysterious form of prayer that is expressed through the spirit, through angelic or foreign tongues uh, by the person speaking them. And it's meant first to be about intimacy. Okay, so terms out of the way, now context. Because remember, the Corinthians, whole different world and a whole different kind of like reception to this word that Paul had for them. So when they heard this chapter, we have to understand where they were coming from and then we'll understand where we're coming from. We'll unpack those two things now. See, Paul was writing to a church where everybody spoke in tongues. 
Like seriously, it was like open mic night or like karaoke on the hill. People were trying to speak in tongues so much. Like any chance they got, they would grab that mic. She came in a Honda, left in a Mazda. Like any chance they had to start speaking in tongues in front of all their friends at church, they were going for it. It was a mess. It was sloppy. It was ridiculous. We're probably on the complete polar opposite. So how are we hearing this? See, I actually think we're hearing it from an attitude where the church is typically ignoring chapters like this or dismissing them because it has been controversial or unintentionally used to harm others. So we're walking into this having no idea what Paul is talking about. And that idea of being unintentionally harmed or or used for controversy, I think it comes from kind of two big misunderstandings when it comes to speaking in tongues that are really prevalent in certain evangelical streams of thought. I'm gonna unpack them for you. Here's the first one. There is a belief in some churches that if you don't speak in tongues, you do not have the Holy Spirit. It's not true, okay? But that's a very dominant thought, that if you don't speak in tongues, you must not have the Holy Spirit. That's one really dominant way that people think. Another one is you just, you're not even saved. If you're not speaking in tongues, you're clearly not saved. And if you're someone who, like me, has been kind of hurt by that kind of thinking, it's easy for you to go, like, they're so dumb. Why do they think that way? When actually we can unpack where in the world they might have gotten this. They actually find their root. Those two misunderstandings of tongues come from how you read the book of Acts. So if you don't know the book of Acts, it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit through the apostles. That's how we would understand it. And it's in understanding kind of two terms, and I'm gonna teach you here for a minute, okay? So it's the terms descriptive and prescriptive, okay? Descriptive and prescriptive. Okay, what's descriptive? It just describes what happens in a story, like Harry Potter has green eyes. It's not that significant, although yeah, his mom does, bad example, okay. So, but Harry Potter has green eyes, done. Describes his eyes, great. It doesn't mean that everyone named Harry Potter ever will always have green eyes. Now, prescriptive is describing something the way it will always happen. So if it's descriptive, it's, hey, this is just a detail for you to understand the story. If it's prescriptive, then that means it always has to happen this way. And so when those two kind of understandings of the Holy Spirit in tongues read the book of Acts and they see the few instances where someone speaks in tongues, they would say that's prescriptive. It always happens that way. You tracking with me? So they would say, oh, okay. So they got saved. They spoke in tongues. That's how it always happened. But here's the thing. Acts has 22 stories where people come to know Jesus. Only three of them do people speak in tongues. So if that is so critical to what happens when you come to know Jesus, how come only three times would you begin to understand, oh, you're supposed to speak in tongues? When you know what is repeated over and over and over and over and over in the scriptures, faith in Jesus alone, faith in Jesus alone, faith in Jesus alone. You wanna Google search how many times is Jesus exclusively mentioned as the only way or clearly the only way to salvation? You will be filled with New Testament passages. So do you see where where that thinking is off? So, So we can trust God's word because he's making it clear in the abundance of stories where tongues isn't happening that it's not required, that it is just what we say it is, a gift just might be something God gives to you and it's meant to be for your good and for the church's good. And so tonight, we're going to filter how we understand the beautiful biblical gift of tongues through chapter 14. 
because there is a beautiful and right way to express this gift and to see it used in a gathering like this and then also privately when you're alone. So turn to, to chapter 14 if you're not there. Put your, your hand uh, or your finger on verse one and, and here's how you're gonna understand this. So Paul helps us understand how to best express the gift of tongues through two things, motivation and desire, and then order and function. So when the church gets together, he's like, here's what's important, motivation and desire. So why are you doing it and your desire for it? And then order and function. Why are you doing it this way? How it should be done. And he starts right away in verse one. He says, pursue love. And a lot of translations, I like this better. They say, eagerly desire spiritual gifts and especially that you may prophesy. Pursue love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts and especially that you may prophesy. And what he's doing right here in telling the Corinthians to do this is immediately confronting you and I with something very broken in our hearts or maybe misaligned in who we are. He's confronting us with two questions because there are two really intense words, pursue and desire, right? Ladies, you know what it's like to be pursued by somebody, right? For better or worse, when he just won't leave you alone and keeps sliding into your DMs and it's like, bro, chill. Like, but you can't fault him for being persistent because I asked a girl out five days in a row in seventh grade and now we have four kids. So six of one, half a dozen of another, right? Just saying. Sometimes when you pursue something like intensely enough, like what I'm trying to see, so Paul is saying pursue in the original language. It was like with all you have, go after. Like with everything in you, pursue what? Love. And then eagerly desire. Ladies, how many guys eagerly desire to go on a date with you, right? And they like do all they can. I know some of these dudes in here super smooth. This isn't even a knock on them. You should pray. I don't know. I'm not even going to go there. Wow. Anyways, maybe the romantic route isn't good. So eagerly desire um, no student loan debt. Oh, yes, Lord, right? Like, like if you knew there was a way, some of you as teachers, like you eagerly desire not having student loan debt so much that you'll go to some strange town in the middle of nowhere who says, in five years, we'll pay off all your loans because you eagerly desire to be debt-free. All I'm saying is the language here is super intense and that might not be helpful at all. But here, what I want you to understand is he's asking then you and I two questions. First one, do you pursue love? Immediately, he's asking, do you pursue love? And then the second question he's asking us is, do you eagerly desire the spiritual gifts? And I think if I caught you in an, in an honest moment, most of you would answer, like me, no. Or at least not wholeheartedly, no. Instead, we pursue love of self really seriously, don't we? Like, I am really good at pursuing anything that makes me feel super loved and happy, especially at the expense of others, which means I actually really eagerly desire comfort, pleasure, and people to stay out of my way, especially if they get in the way of my comfort and pleasure. Most of us live so focused on self, pursuing things that make the self happy, that this might not even be a category for us. And in order to cultivate a pursuit of love and an eager desire for the gifts, I think it has to flow from the same place, intimacy with God. It starts with intimacy with God. And if the word intimacy with already makes you uncomfortable when it comes to God, that should be a warning sign. 
So, a genuine pursuit of love and an eager desire for the gift starts in intimacy with God. The extent to which you will pursue love and those gifts has everything to do with the level of relationship you have with the Father. It has everything to do. Because here's what's happened. Here's what happens. When you spend time with God, and you do it again and again and again, you fall in love with him. And you can't help but be around him. And you can't help but want to know what he loves and why he loves it and what he's doing and why he's doing it. You begin to understand the things that make his heart stir and move. You begin to sit with him and learn what he loves and who he is, why he's doing it. And so you'll spend more and more time with him because isn't he pursuing love itself? He is the embodiment of pursuing love. So as you pursue him, you're just following in his footsteps as he came for you in the first place. And you sit with him and you realize, I want the affections you have and I want to be doing the things you're doing because if you're doing it, that means you're there and I want to be there too, which will then cause you to realize I need to be equipped to do this. And so as you pursue love, Jesus Christ, God himself, he will then equip you, give you the ability to then do the things he's doing and love his church. Because that's what God is doing. He's pursuing people in love and he's inviting all of you to be a part of it. But it starts with relationship. God did not save you so he could have some sort of contractual obligatory relationship with you. God rescued you because the thing he lost in the first place was relationship and it's the thing he came to get back. And so if we wanna be a people who lives biblical lives, we have to be a people who spend intimate time with God it will always lead you back to the same place, love. But here's kind of the issue of, of American church, is we treat church like a place for our consumption of a Christian product that's put on by religious professionals. We often treat church like this place where we go consume our Christian project and leave the rest of the actual biblical living up to the religious professionals. Instead of an outpost of the kingdom of God fighting to display the truer way to be human through the family of God called the local church, which when brought into it, the crazy thing is he doesn't just say, now you're adopted, he also puts you on the front lines. Messy, incapable, unqualified you, he puts a tool in your hand and he says, now work with me. That's how we're supposed to view the church. Not as this, so, so think about it. Some of you, a lot of you, all of us, we come and we enjoy the music. We can consume a nice teaching and then we go on with our lives. I wonder if most of you have issues with your Christianity malfunctioning because it's focused on what you're getting out of it and not how you're living for it. I wonder if the frustration you may feel when it comes to your Christian life is because you're spending so much time trying to just consume things when the whole message of Jesus is you put everything on the line for me and that's where you'll really find your life. And so in that place, you would come into this room and you begin to ask God, who could I pray for? God, is there someone in this room that although it might be risky, you're gonna tell me to walk up, tap them on the, so on the shoulder and tell them, God, don't, or, don't say that, that's bad. But but say, hey, can I pray for you? I don't know why, just felt led to come talk to you. This is not this, yes, while you're sitting here consuming this teaching, if during the worship you feel led to tap someone on the shoulder and pray for them, to ask God that question is risky, but to watch what he'll do with it is worth it. What if instead of going to small group, you just go, oh, okay, I really wanna consume. It better be good for me. And then you leave because the experience wasn't what you wanted when maybe the problem is 
because you came hoping to consume when God put you in that group to give. Like, I wonder what would change if all of us started walking into our small groups going, who tonight, God, are you gonna let me pray for? Who tonight, God, is hurting financially that I can put money on the line for? Who tonight is hurting emotionally that I can just sit with and not say a word? Our natural mindset is how can we consume when the mindset of God's church is give? And so before we ask for the gift of tongues, and the reason I started with this is because we have to first ask for a heart of love and we have to cultivate it through intimacy. Okay. But why prophecy, right? Why prophecy, Paul? Look at verses two through five. He explains it. So why this idea of prophecy in tongues? He says, for the person who speaks in another tongue is not speaking to people, but to God. Since no one understands him, he speaks mysteries in the spirit. On the other hand, the person who prophesies speaks to people for their strengthening, encouragement, and consolation. The person who speaks in another tongue builds himself up, but the one who prophesies builds up the church. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so that the church may be built up. See, the pursuit of love now helps us prioritize how we should be expressing the gifts of the Spirit when we come together. It actually begins to then say, okay, some of these are better than others when we come together, and it's clear that prophecy is better than tongues. Why? Because tongues seems to only help the person speaking in them and requires this like next step of interpretation where if you just begin to prophesy, people can immediately understand what you're saying. So he says, uh, this is why that's important. It's got this immediate impact if you prophesy where you might not always have an interpretation. God might not lead you to it, so don't do it. But the Corinthians, like I said, open mic night, hot mess. Any chance they got, they started speaking in tongues. And what they were doing was overvaluing anyone who could speak in tongues. Look at verses five. It tells us that. The person who prophesies is greater than the person who speaks in tongues unless he interprets so the church may be built up. I think Paul's trying to tell them, hey, you seem to think that speaking in tongues is like the end-all, be-all of Christian gifts, but I'm telling you right now, if you can prophesy, it's greater. And the reason I think they were, they were falling into this trap is because they, like us, were buying into culture's view of significance, and they had a really poor view of what Christian maturity actually was. See, cultural lies, they really have not changed much. They're just really good at reinventing themselves to hide in the stream of thought and world that they're in year after year after year. Let's talk about the lie of significance. Think about it. All of us feel this innate need to stand out, to be different, to somehow validate to the world that we matter. We usually do it by like what we have, um, um, who we are, the profession we live. All of us are caught up in this constant anxiety of do I matter, am I significant? I have to have something to bring to the table, otherwise I have nothing and I am nothing. We hinge our identity on these ridiculous ways of being loved. And I'm telling you right now, if you know Jesus, your significance does not come from what you bring to the table or what you can do. It comes from what he says to you. And what he says to you is the same thing he said to Jesus. When Jesus came out of the waters of baptism, he looked at him, he said, that is my son with whom I am well pleased. And if you know Jesus, you find your significance in the fact that he looks at you and he says the same thing. That is my daughter in whom I'm well pleased. That is my son in whom I'm well pleased. In the Christian walk, significance comes from who we are loved by, not by what we bring. 
That is where significance really comes from. Then there's the other lie of spiritual maturity. We have this thing in these Christian subcultures where it's like, well, I'm a salt leader, so you know that's a really big deal. I don't know any salt leaders who talk like that. Um, Or like being a pastor. A lot of you are convinced, I think, in your hearts, like, I could never be as spiritual as Michael. Oh my gosh, that's amazing. He's on the stage. I'll never know the Bible. Like, Like Laura, what is she doing? That's amazing. I don't have gifting like that to play any music. I don't go on stage. Or we like think the more like crazy experiences you have, like Holy Spirit ones, then you're obviously mature. I don't know if you're like that, but, but I grew up in this dream thinking like the more you could do Holy Spirit things, the more mature you were. But what I always noticed about those people is they were always like really annoying to be around or really awful later on. So while they had all these really awesome experiences, their character just sucked. They like didn't change. In fact, I felt like they got worse. No matter how many times they saw something miraculous happen, they were still really mean to their kids or always angry. So true maturity in the Christian life is actually found in 1 Corinthians 13, love. True maturity is found in how we use the platforms and gifts we are given to love others. If you want to find out how mature someone is in Christ, watch how they love, especially when it's really hard or when they gain nothing from it. Because anything else is the opposite because what it will do is it will turn this context and other people into objects you use to gain more experiences or stories to continue to try to prove your false maturity. So if you wanna know what true Christian maturity is, it's love. It's not self-seeking. And in their spiritual immaturity, the Corinthian church was misusing the gift of tongues and malfunctioning the expression of love it was intended for when they gathered. And now Paul's going to go after them with three different analogies. He's going to see them, uh, he's going to unpack it for them in music, war, and language. So he's going to say, this is why this is a mess. I'm going to use some analogies. Verse 7, he says, even lifeless instruments that produce sounds, whether flute or harp, which I don't know a lot of you who play the harp, but God bless, um, if they don't make a distinction in the notes, how will what is played on the flute or harp be recognized. Here's how I want you to think about this. Has anyone ever been to an orchestra concert? Anybody? My wife was like a violinist forever when we were dating. I was like, of course I'll go to that. And then there's this horrible moment, I don't know if you've ever been to these, where all of the musicians play their instruments at the same time, off key, and it's like a pit to hell opens up and Satan's like, ah! It's the most horrible noise ever. I hate it, I hate it. Some of you are like, I can't chew cotton balls. I can't go to orchestra concerts. It's so bad. Just the, just the beginning. I could skip that and go, right? But it's just all of, they're, all, they're out in tune and, and it just doesn't make sense. It's like, ah, oh, you're almost like jazz. That doesn't make sense either. Like, what are you doing? Like, but what I'm saying is it's these notes everywhere. They don't make sense. They're not harmonizing. Paul is like, hey, Corinthians, you keep coming to church and you're all spouting off in tongues. It's just like noise. It doesn't hit a note. God's church is supposed to be a symphony And a symphony can't be beautiful if a wrong note keeps getting hit. Stop doing it. That's what he says. Then he goes on, war, verse 8. In fact, if the bugle, whatever that is, (laughs) makes an unclear sound. (laughs) I don't know. I thought of bugles, you know, the things you ate. You stick on your hands like a witch. You're like, ah, yeah. (laughs) That's what I thought of. I don't know. (laughs) So if one of those makes an unclear sound, 
who will prepare for battle. <laughs> oh, I don't sleep anymore. That's, this last month's going to be good. Oh, my gosh. Okay, he basically says, look, if you use your tongue for speech that doesn't make sense, how can anyone know what you're saying? So in the ancient world, you wouldn't get a tweet saying, yo, we're under attack. You'd hear the bugle, like go off. And you'd be like, oh, shoot, Peter, we're going to die. Let's get our sword. And you'd go start fighting, right? Like, here we go. And he's basically saying, look, if that bugle sounded a little bit to the left, you'd be like, oh, oatmeal's ready, not war. Like, here we go. Like, I don't know. Do they eat oatmeal in Jerusalem? Probably not. It's probably not kosher. It's, I don't know. Oh. Oh. See what the bugle does if it's played wrong? It's just confusing, okay? That's what tongues is like. It's confusing. It doesn't make sense. Paul's like, look, you think you're doing this great thing, but the thing is you're speaking, and it's actually leaving people really unprepared. Because remember when I prayed earlier that this gathering is a declaration of war? It's not just some fancy thing I thought of. It's true, right? Every time we come in and we joke about weird snacks we had when we were 12, we recognize, unless some of you still eat them, God bless. Um, if we don't come into this place recognizing we're in a war and we don't turn this gathering to a way to strengthen and prepare our brothers and sisters to go keep fighting that battle, what are we doing? It's not helpful. So the Corinthians are saying, look, I'm, we're going to speak in tongues. Everybody goes, that's great. I don't understand. Gosh, that was great. I missed you guys. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> So language, last one, verse 10. This is the only thing I know how to do is keep going. There are doubtless many different kinds of languages in the world. None is without meaning. Therefore, if I do not know the meaning of the language, I will be a foreigner to the speaker, and the speaker will be a foreigner to me. So imagine after this set, Nils comes out, and he starts singing Hope Has a Name in Korean, right? And I'm not at all aware of any Korean words, so just imagine it in your own mind. Uh, and all of us would be like, that's really great. I didn't know he was bilingual. Um, thought he was Scandinavian, Nils. Uh, <laughs> we'd all be like, that's really pretty, but it doesn't help me. It's just his last analogy Paul's making. He's like, look, tongues, it doesn't matter if you're speaking in some kind of great language. If people can't hear, how does it help? It's kind of like that. So we have to ask ourselves, Paul's harping really hard on how this really messes things up. Is he going to help us understand how it goes right? The answer is yes. In verse 13 and 14, he helps us understand how to do that. He says, therefore, the person who speaks in another tongue should pray that he can interpret. For if I pray in another tongue, my spirit prays, but my understanding is unfruitful. So when you pray, you should ask for interpretation. If you're going to speak in tongues publicly, you need to translate. Uh, I've, I pray in tongues. I've never once, except one time, privately in a bathroom, as my wife was having an anxiety attack, had God give me an interpretation. I began to speak over her, and I, she heard God say, be still, and her anxiety went away. I've been in a lot of church gatherings where people speak in tongues out loud, and then nothing is said afterwards. It's not helpful. But I am convinced that if we become a people who pursues love and desires the spiritual gifts, that if one of you came to me and said, I think I have a word, and we prayed together and you spoke that over us, I think I have room for it. Because I'm 
so after living a biblical life, not a Christian consumption life. I really do think the things we read about in this book are things we can live out right now. But how, how do you get an interpretation, right? Like, what's the Rosetta Stone for the language of angels? That's what I thought. Verse 15, he says, What then? I will pray with the Spirit, and I will also pray with my understanding. I will sing praise with the Spirit, and I will also sing praise with my understanding. He's basically saying when you speak in tongues, while you're speaking in tongues, ask God with your mind to help you understand what you're saying in English. That 40-year-old woman that I told you about in the first story is my mother. Very, very often, someone who is hurting will come to her mind and she will begin to pray in tongues. And very shortly after, a prayer in perfect English for that person and their specific hurt will pour out of her mouth. She would tell you that while she's praying in tongues, she asks God, who am I praying for? And not all the time, but sometimes he'll tell her. That's what that looks like. Like all of you hopefully can chew gum and walk. So I think you could also like, while you're praying, be thinking of something else. Like have you ever been in a prayer circle and all of a sudden forget who's praying or what they're praying about? Because you're thinking about like, I'm really hungry or who farted next to me, like things like that. I know all of you can, can talk and think at the same time. It's a skill I think all of us have. He's saying it's that simple. See, I think a lot of times we want to make these things really mysterious and we want to make them really like, oh my gosh. He's literally saying, no, while you're praying in tongues, think about what it is that you're, you're saying. It's that simple. And this kind of, of speaking in tongues in a gathering follows the principle of love because it would allow the whole room to hear what you have to say. And so I would actually say tonight you should ask God for the gift of tongues and then you should see if he'll give you an interpretation. Okay, and then you, you get to this point now in the sermon, you go, okay, Paul just made three really clear analogies about how they were blowing it and how it goes wrong. Then he still said, and look, this is how you do it right. We have to ask the question, is Paul just insecure because he doesn't speak in tongues? Like, have we thought about that? Like, maybe he's just like, look, if they begin to speak in tongues, then they're way surpassing my spirituality. So if I can just keep them from doing that, I'll continue to have my position of authority. The answer to that is in verse 18. I thank God that I speak in other tongues more than all of you. This is like an ancient mic drop, I think you would call it, right? Like he drops the quill, boom. He wasn't there. That's not how that worked. But here's what I do think. I think most of the church had no idea that Paul did that. And you know why? Not because of some false modesty, but because Paul understood how the Spirit actually works to love the church. He had a mature understanding of what it looks like when the Holy Spirit expresses itself and loves the church. Because he continues to tell us then what's more important in two different ways. Verse 19, he says, Yet in the church, so this gathering, I would rather speak five words with my understanding in order to teach others also than 10,000 words in another tongue. What he's saying is the phrase, Jesus Christ died for you, is far more effective than if I were to stand up here and speak in tongues the whole time. Because that phrase alone has more uh, power in it because it doesn't need an interpretation. It comes right at you and tells you a truth versus just speaking in tongues over and over and over and over again. It doesn't help. That's what he's saying. And then he kind of frames in like, how do we think about this? He says, brothers and sisters, don't be childish in your thinking, but be infants in regard to evil and adult in your thinking. And here's something we can all agree with, and I don't think they'll be offended, but children are shallow, Right? Like they're impressed by really silly things and they're just really, we're really shallow too. They're just less likely to hide it, right? 
That's what this is basically saying. So here's an example. I have a two-year-old. She loves unicorns. She calls them corns anytime she sees one on a shirt. She goes, my corn, my corn. Um, it's, it's very cute. But if it was negative 30 degrees out and I showed her a sparkly tank top with a unicorn on it and then this really nice like Patagonia coat that would actually keep her warm and I said, which one do you think is better for the weather out there? She'd go, corn, right? Because it's sparkly and it's got unicorns and it's so great. What I think Paul is saying in here is like, don't think like a child, okay? A child would go, oh, but tongue seems more impressive. Tongue, tongue seems more mysterious and awesome. I should pick that one. Paul's saying, no. The right way to think, the adult way to think is what is most loving. The adult way to think is what is most loving. Do that. And, and to that end, this is what I would say, like a, just a personal word. I think you should... If God gives you the gift of tongues, keep it a private thing unless you're given a translation for everyone in the room to understand. And like I told you, my experience of this has been rare. But also if you pray and you don't get the gift of tongues, don't think that God's like, yeah, I'm just not gonna be nice to you. It's just a gift. It's just an expression. Whether or not you have it, it doesn't make you more superior. That's what this whole passage is about. Just think I need to say that. So then they, they kind of maybe have another pushback. In verse 21, Paul quotes this prophecy from Isaiah that I'm not going to quote because we don't have time, but it's from Isaiah 28, 11. And this verse talks about how the, these foreigners' lips speaking the truths of God. And what Paul is basically saying here is, look, when the prophets spoke in their language, they didn't listen. So why would someone speaking in a different language do anything better? He's saying, if they won't hear it in their own language, why would another language be any more helpful? It just doesn't work. So what's the point of tongues? We've got to begin to understand this. Verses 22 through 25 help us. I'm going to read them. Speaking in other tongues then, here's where it's, what it's for, is intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers. While prophecy is not for unbelievers, but for believers. Okay, let's unpack that. When he says it's intended as a sign, not for believers, but for unbelievers, think about Acts 2. If you've ever read the story of Acts 2, the Holy Spirit falls on people in the upper room and they begin to speak in tongues that are not their own. Foreign tongues, angelic tongues, stuff people don't understand. A bunch of people go, you must be drunk. And then Peter goes, no, bro, not drunk. Holy Spirit. I don't think he said it that calmly. Uh, I don't know, Peter. But um, it's saying, look, that sign got everyone's attention. Okay, so we're there. So tongues is supposed to be a sign that can get the attention of non-believers where prophecy helps build up believers. Then he says, though, and this might seem where Paul is contradicting himself, and he's not. He says, if, therefore, the whole church assembles together and all are speaking in tongues, like the Corinthians were, and people who are outsiders, non-Christians, or unbelievers come in, will they not say that you're out of your minds? Like, can you imagine if somebody came in right now who does not know Jesus, maybe you're in this room, and what would you think if all of a sudden all of us were like, you'd be like, I'm out. It's a cult. I knew it the whole time. I'm done. No, I will not take communion with you, right? It's not helpful. So what he's again trying to stress to them is don't overemphasize something that pushes it out of the realm of actually being helpful. Don't overemphasize something that ends up not being very helpful. But here's what he says. But if all are prophesying and some unbeliever or outsider comes in, he's convicted by all and is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart will be revealed, and as a result, he will fall face down and worship God, proclaiming, God is really among you. And again, Acts 2 is our example. The manifestation of tongues drew everyone's attention, but it was this, the sermon Peter spoke 
that cut 3,000 people to the heart and the church was born. So that's how that passage works itself out is Acts 2, we see tongues draws people's attention, but it's the, the prophetic word, the truth in language all could understand that brings them to salvation. So how do we land? Where, where do we go from here? We, we finish with verses 26 through 28, and then I'll say a few things. What then, brothers and sisters, whenever you come together, each one has a hymn, a teaching, a revelation, another tongue, or an interpretation. He's like, that's great, but remember, everything is to be done for building up. Whatever you bring, whatever you bring, whether it's tongues, whether it's this teaching, whether it's the songs that Nils and the band sing, whether it's the, the proclamation of the word that AJ calls over you, whatever you do, it has to be for building up. If anyone speaks in another tongue, there are only to be two. So there's guidelines to this, or at the most three, so that it doesn't turn into open mic night, right? Each in turn and let someone interpret. So as much as God kind of explodes his spirit in miraculous ways, he's very much a God of order and purpose. So if you're experiencing something of the spirit that feels out of control, I think it's fair if you ask yourself, is this the spirit? It doesn't mean that it's not risky, but it, I don't think the Holy Spirit's out of control. I think that's what Paul is trying to land here. And then he, he reminds them, but if there's no interpreter, keep silent in the church and speak to himself and God. And at the end, he's like, don't prohibit anyone from speaking in tongues. So what Paul does here, it's all company, is he reiterates the motivation of love and a desire for order when you express any gift, not just tongues. But he's made pretty clear, especially tongues. Okay, so what about you and me, though? Like, where do we go from tonight? I think we have to go back to verse one. And we have to ask ourselves, do we pursue love? And do we eagerly desire the spiritual gifts? Because God does not want to give you gifts of the Holy Spirit so that you can have a Christian party trick. People's lives are at stake. The kingdom of God is trying to claim back the powers of darkness. And so his expressions of his spirit are meant to build up that purpose. But it starts with intimacy. Like I really, really do think God is calling your generation, the ones that will lead my children someday, he's calling all of you to seek after one thing and it's presence, it's intimacy. Before you ever get a gift from him, before you ever do anything miraculous, the thing I think he wants more than anything is you. I think so many of you give him little bits and pieces, distracted ones at that. But guess what? He would take the distracted pieces and some of you aren't giving him that at all. And when it comes to like intimacy with God, relationship with God, I, I want you to recognize he's not the one hiding, you are. Often when I come to a quiet time or time to be with Jesus, it's not uh, God that I have to play hide and seek with. It's me being real and honest that I have to convince to come out because the world has abused and used me and told me lies that I'm almost afraid. But every time I let my guard down in the presence of God, I am met with the smile of my father and my friend. I want all of you to speak in tongues. I do because I believe that the Bible is telling us something that is for today. But more than that, 
and even more than prophecy, what I want for all of you is intimacy with God. I want you to see the church not as a place where you consume a nice product to subdue your shame-filled conscience, but as a place where you, undeserved, broken in pieces, you, were put back together and then given a job and a role. That's crazy, right? Like, like I have four kids, okay? I love every single one of them uniquely, even though two of them look exactly the same. Like, we have to start there, though, and I've said this over and over again, and then I'll be done, but I'm gonna rant for a minute. God does not just love you, he likes you. You are not a burden to him. You are not in his way because he has other things to do. When you start to talk to him, he stops everything because he can do anything he wants. The fact that you want to stop and talk to him is never something that he would ignore. He did not design this so that you would come, feel great one Thursday, nice on another Sunday, and okay on a Tuesday because group's not that great. He came so that you, broken you, would have light that is truly light shined on your soul, and then he would give you a candle, a light, the same ability to go to another person and say, I have light that I can give to you. Like, do you realize that? And he doesn't just go like, okay, good luck. Like, I'm gonna stand up here in heaven. You do your thing. No, the God of the universe, the great I am, lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit, that's who he is. God who was and is and is to come, dwelling inside of you and me. That's why it was better for Jesus to go, because now he can be in all of us. And I have to believe that he absolutely does miraculous things. If only we would seek intimacy, presence, and then desire to build his church. Amen? Something, right? So, okay, that's nice. Okay. I just, guys, I, I am not content. I'm going to throw these. I am not content with all of you having four years of salt company go pretty great and then the rest of your life completely tank, either because you faked it for a long time, you were lukewarm, or eventually you just fell completely away. And I'm telling you, the kingdom of darkness never takes a day off. He is waiting for the moment that he can grab you. But the greatest thing that I have found to push back the kingdom of darkness is intimacy with the God of the universe who when his light shines, darkness has to run and hide. What if we were a people who lived really normal lives supernaturally? What if we were people who totally blew it all the time, but had a God who never did? What if we were a place that didn't walk around hoping we were a better ministry than all the other ones, but were a people who said, I have hope that you're looking for, and I want to give it to you. That's what God wants to do through us. That's who the Holy Spirit is trying to turn us into is that kind of people. And so, yeah, I'm going to pray that you speak in tongues. But more than anything, I'm going to pray that you fall in love with God. Let's do that. Father, I have to believe that the little blip that is our lives in Cedar Falls, Iowa, in the year 2019 and however many years you have us, as insignificant and unnecessary as they are to your plan, you have made them very significant. And, and 
and very necessary because you're choosing to tell a great story through a broken people. And my greatest desire, my greatest desire for this room is that they would know you. That they would say to culture, you can't have me. That they would say to the kingdom of darkness, I'm not gonna listen. And that they would pursue love. And then as they would begin to pursue love, they would say, oh, I wanna be in the presence of this love all the time. And then they would find that you begin to give them gifts that they would walk into spaces and places, classrooms, not just churches, and ask you, who should I pray for right now? God, who in this room could I speak to? God, where do you want me to go? What do you want me to do? And I believe that this room is filled with young men and women who want to say yes to that. Would they do that with me? Will we sit in your presence now and declare war on the darkness in the world around us.